Okay, well, it's really great to see you. Welcome. And I trust you're feeling at home and warm. Is everyone warm enough this morning? Yes? Sun's out? Okay. Uh, the title of my message this morning is How Not to Respond to an Angel. All right? How Not to Respond to an Angel. And we're going to look, this is traditionally the um, Advent calendar for the Christian church in the world. And what happens during this month as we approach Christmas is that the church reflects on Jesus, His incarnation, why He came, and what we believe as Christians He did. And um, that's called Advent, all right? And that's what the, the church traditionally celebrates at this time. And uh, I really pray this morning that I'll be able to communicate clearly to you, because if I don't, it would be not advantageous to you if I do that. Uh, there you are. That was a joke. Did you not get it? But anyway, it doesn't matter. But I'm going to look at Luke chapter 1 over the next four Sundays, or right, the next four times we get together. And uh, this message is called, How Not to Respond to an Angel. And I hope it will inspire you to respond with faith when God speaks to you, all right? To respond with faith. And um, if you've got your Bibles open, the first couple of verses of Luke, the first four verses actually are a little preface that Luke writes. And you know that Luke writes two volumes in the New Testament, doesn't he? He writes his own gospel, the gospel of Luke, and he writes the book of Acts, right? Luke is the same person that writes Acts and the gospel of Luke. And he makes his point clear. He's writing to a guy called Theophilus, and he says, he makes it quite clear in verse 3 why he's writing. So I want to encourage you with that right at the beginning because it helps you to, when you read Luke and when you read the book of Acts, if you understand why Luke is writing and whom he's writing to, it makes a difference in how you read it. All right? So he's writing to this guy called Theophilus. And he says in verse 3, It seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So right there, we know why Luke is writing his gospel, and later why he writes the book of Acts. Because he says in the book of Acts, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote to you about all the things that Jesus said and did. So the two are connected. You get it? All right? And then he says here, that he wants to write an orderly account. Remember, he's a doctor, he's a bright man, and he's writing in an orderly way. And that's very, very important because he's saying, you can trust my evidence. You can trust what I'm presenting to you, and I'm a good witness. That's basically what he's saying. So then the only other thing we need to consider by way of introduction is, who is Theophilus? It's a good question. If these two books are written to this guy, who is he? Well, there have been some theories about who Theophilus is. Some people have said that the name Theophilus, which means friends of God, friend of God, is just an honorary title, and it's really written to all friends of God everywhere. Yeah, so it's written, it's like an honorary title, my dear Theophilus, written to anyone who's a friend of God, and that's what Luke is meaning. Uh, John Wesley um, uh, held a different view. He, he said that uh, he believed that Theophilus was a very important Jewish guy from Alexandra. And the Coptic church, the Eastern church, has held that view um, as well. Uh, others have believed that uh, he was a lawyer acting for Paul and that Paul knew him really well and that's who he was. And um, others think he was a guy called Theophilus ben Ananus, who was a high priest in the temple of Jerusalem. 
And in that view, he would have also then been a Sadducee, and that uh, could explain why Luke writes so clearly about the resurrection. He's trying to convince this guy who's from a Jewish background. However, all of those views, there's a decisive argument in my view that um, puts pain to all of those arguments because he uses this phrase, most excellent Theophilus, right? And if you read the book of Acts, Luke uses it again three other times, exactly that same phrase in the book of Acts. He uses it to describe uh, high-ranking Roman officials. So in, um, in uh, Acts 23, 26, he says, Most excellent Felix, who was the governor of Judea. And then again in verse 26, uh, chapter 26, verse 25, he says, Most excellent Festus, and Festus was the guy that took over from Felix. And so it seems to me it's quite clear that when Luke uses the phrase, he uses it in the same way. So he must be writing to some kind of Roman official, because in Acts, to describe Roman officials, he uses exactly the same phrase. And so with that in mind, some people have said that actually he's referring to Titus Flavius Sabinus, who was a prefect of Rome, and the older brother of the guy who would eventually become Roman Emperor Vespasian. And so, whoever he was, it doesn't really matter in some ways who he was, although it's rather interesting to think about it. What Luke is saying to Theophilus is, I don't want you to just take a leap in, in the dark in terms of what you believe. And how many times haven't you heard Christians uh, are confronted with that from non-believers? Oh, you Christians, it's all a leap of faith. It's all just like believing stuff. Well, actually, no. The Bible has never been about just taking a leap of faith in the dark. The Bible has always been based on history, and the faith that we exert is on the basis of things that we know and have heard and are true. And on that basis, we respond with faith. It's not an existential kind of leap in the dark, just believing something out of thin air. Are you with me? And so that's what Luke is saying. He's saying, I want you to be able to trust everything that I'm saying because I have eyewitnesses. That's what he says in verse 3. He says, I've given this careful and patient research. And secondly, there are many written sources that I've re um, uh, referenced with my own eyes. And thirdly, I have direct access to eyewitnesses that have seen these events. And therefore, you can trust my account of what I'm writing down. Introduction. Let's go then. To verse 5. And here he begins his story. And I've got three very, very simple points. The third one is the most important, how we respond when we hear God speaking to us. That's the most important. So here we go. Um, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife of the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, and they were blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, it fell on him by lot to empty the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he will drink no wine, 
or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in spirit and in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the people the Lord and to prepare the way for the Lord. Wow, what a promise that the angel brings to Zechariah. And then Zechariah says to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Sounds like someone else we read about in Genesis, doesn't it? Sounds like Abraham. Same problem. Zechariah faces the same problem as Abraham did. And uh, he ca carries on. Um, and the angel answers him and says, I am Gabriel, Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring this good, good news to you. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things come to pass, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they wondered what the delay was in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he made signs to them and remained dumb. And when the time of his service was ended, he went to his home. And after all these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she hid herself, saying, Thus the Lord has done in me in the days when he looked upon me to take away the, my reproach, reproach among men. Wow, that's quite a dramatic story, isn't it? story of Elizabeth and uh, Zachariah. And what I would like us to see this morning is quite simple. There are patterns in these verses, and the patterns mean something. Okay? There are patterns in the, the, these verses, and the pattern means something. Luke wants us to understand something in the way that he's writing. And uh, he's interesting because he's the only one in all the gospel accounts that includes this portion telling us about the birth of John the baptizer. And you see in those first verses, verse 5 to 25, it begins with the announcement of John's birth to Zechariah. Then in verse 26 to 38 comes the announcement of Jesus' birth to Mary. And then if you go on a little bit from verse 39, there's a connection made between the two of these events as Elizabeth meets Mary and they magnify God and worship Him for what He's doing. And then lastly in the chapter from verse 57 onwards um, comes the birth of John and the, the, the song of praise that follows, and then the birth of Jesus and the song of the angels. And so there's clearly this pattern as Luke unpacks this uh, chapter for us. Announcement to John, announcement of Jesus' birth, birth of John, birth of Jesus, and the link between the two pairs is Mary and Elizabeth. And they are both pregnant in an unexpected way, all right? And they meet each other, and they swap stories, basically. And so what John wants to get us to understand from this pattern is to contrast the birth of Jesus with the birth of John. And he says some things are similar, and he says some things are very, very different. And so he wants us to compare. And I trust as you reflect on these verses, you will compare a little bit. You'll think a little bit of what God wants to speak to you out of this portion. Do you notice that both of the births are announced by Gabriel, the angel, in verse 11 and 26? Both births are either miraculous or unnatural in some way. Um, in both cases, the angel says what the name should be of the, the, the child that is to be, be born, and so on. So these are the similarities. 
But even more important are the differences. Do you notice? John was born to an old woman who was sterile. Do you notice that? Jesus was born to a young woman who was a virgin. John was given a name, which means God is gracious. Jesus was given a name, which means Savior, Emmanuel, God with us. And so John was to prepare the way for the Lord. Jesus was the King, the Lord, who was going to reign forever. And so in this way, Luke is trying to help Theophilus and us to see two very simple, important things. And here's the first one. First, simply that God is uniquely at work in both of these men's lives doing a sovereign thing. All right? That's the important thing for Theophilus to understand about the history of Jesus, that it originated in God's purpose, in God's sovereign plan. And why was that important? Because if Theophilus was a, sov- uh, was a Roman official, and I think that's the most likely uh, explanation of who he was, to believe that a poor Jewish teacher who was the son of a carpenter who was executed as a criminal is really the son of God. It would have been very hard for a Roman official to believe that. That such a man, such a person, a poor, humble carpenter, is actually the eternal king and the savior of the universe would have been very hard for Theophilus to get his head around. So Luke, right at the beginning, gets us to see, and Theophilus to see, that actually the way these, these uh, births came about and were announced, it wasn't two ordinary people. This was not the story of two ordinary men. It was the story of a sovereign God ordaining His purpose for the world and putting it into place and announcing it before it even came to pass. He was announcing what was going to happen. And so he does that in two ways. He, he, he um, describes through the angel. He predicts what's going to happen. So verse 13, the angel says, Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And in verse 24 says, After these days his wife Elizabeth conceived. And you, the only thing that really can make that authoritative in our lives is that it was a prediction. It was spoken about before it happened. It was prophesied. And only God really knows the future. And so in that very simple way, we can see this is God's sovereign purpose for Elizabeth. He says beforehand what's going to happen, before it happens, and we can see what is prophesied comes true, and confirmation for us right at the beginning. This is the sovereign hand of God at work in Elizabeth's life. And he wants to demonstrate unmistakably that he is God, that he is in charge, that he is at work, and that these are not just unusual coincidences. They were ordained by his sovereign will, his sovereign purpose, right from the beginning. And the other way that um, Luke shows this, the sovereignty of God and His control, is in the miraculous nature of these births. Uh, They are not just predicted, they are humanly impossible. Uh, They just shouldn't happen, all right? And I've I've been around long enough in the ministry to have had the privilege of praying for women who the doctors say, It is absolutely impossible for you to have a child. It is medically impossible. It's not ever going to happen. Just get your head around that. Make peace with that. Your husband's sperm and your eggs just are not going to ever get together. You're not going to have a child. Just make peace with it. (laughs) But God, and we have prayed many, many times, 
and seen women whose doctors have said, it's impossible for you to have a child, and I've held the baby in my arms. God can do anything. Nothing is impossible for him. And I want to say to you this morning, if you're a woman and you're still trusting God for a child and you've not yet had one, I want to say to you, I still believe God can do what the doctors say is impossible because I've seen it with my own eyes many times. He can do the impossible. And this is what uh, verse 7 says. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. And then after John conceives, the angel says to Mary in verse 28, Behold, your, your king's woman Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her when she was called barren. For with God, nothing is impossible. Come on! Of course, said I shouldn't shout because the, the thing spikes when I shout when they're recording it. So I took the mic. It's worth getting excited about. With God, nothing is impossible. Nothing is too hard for Him. And so that's the first thing that, that um, Luke wants us to under, understand. And the second thing is very simple. He just wants us to understand at the outset that as great as the work that is done for Elizabeth in the birth of John, the work that is done in Mary about Jesus is just at a completely different level. It's a completely more magnificent thing. So he's comparing the two, right? And he says um, uh, in verse uh, 32, Gabriel says, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High God, and the Lord God will give him the throne to his father David, and he will reign forever over the house of Jacob. We just know right from the very beginning that Jesus, what happens with him is at a completely different sphere of what happens with John the baptizer. Those are the two simple things. And we kind of know that in a way, because uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, when we first meet uh, John, what does he say of Jesus? He says, I'm not worthy even to untie the sandals of his feet. So we already know. But yeah, it's prophesied before in, in Luke's account that Jesus is in every way superior to John. So I said uh, the title of our message is How Not to Respond to an Angel, and here is why. It's called that. And it really has to do with us responding to God's promise and whether we respond with faith or not. And this is the most important thing that uh, Luke wants Theophilus to see. He wants to see us to see the power of God in Jesus, absolutely. But he also wants Theophilus to see and us to see that there's a right way and there's a wrong way to respond when God promises us something. There's a right way and there's a wrong way to respond when God promises us something. And the contrast is absolutely clear and unavoidable when we look at Zechariah on the one hand and we look at Mary on the other. And we look at Gabriel speaking to both of them that he's gonna, God is going to give them each a child and their response. And I want to put it plainly, God wants us to respond like Mary, not like Zechariah. Simple. That's the point of the story. You see? Zechariah says to Gabriel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And Abraham says, Gabriel says, Well, I'm Gabriel, and you know, I read it already. And these things will come to pass, and you will be silent and unable to speak, because you do not believe my words. You do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah really did not believe the promise of God. And I've said it already. Let me say it again. It sounds amazingly the same as Abraham and Sarah, doesn't it? 
Exactly the same situation. Abraham, I'm promising that you're going to have a son. And as numerous as the stars are in the sky, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham, it says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Here we have Zechariah, who does not believe God, and he wavers in his unbelief. Contrasting to Abraham, where the Scripture says quite clearly, he did not waver in his unbelief, but believed God. Yeah? And so, I think that Luke wants us to contrast this response of um, Zechariah to Mary's faith, because even uh, Elizabeth, her, his wife, comments on how Mary responds in a way that actually sounds a little bit critical of her husband. She says in verse um, 45, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken. You hear that? She's actually saying, oh, I, wish my, I wish Zachariah had just responded a bit differently. You believed there was a fulfillment. He didn't. Come on. Blessed are you that believed there was a fulfillment of the Word of God's promise. So, how did Mary's faith express itself? Well, when the angel speaks to her, what does she say? She says in verse 34, how can this be since I have no husband? Note the contrast. Zachariah says, how can I know this? More evidence. I need more evidence to believe this, Lord. I need more evidence. Give me more evidence. How does Mary respond? How can this be? She's just saying, help me understand. I don't have a husband. How can it be? I don't, it's not that I don't believe you, but, but help me understand. Where's it gonna, how's it going to happen? I don't have a husband. It's a difference, isn't it? And so we will see later, and I'll do this next week, that Mary receives a, like a partial explanation uh, of what's going to happen. But Zechariah receives a rebuke. And he's made dumb. And, and Luke's point is, again, I want to say it. Luke's point is, when God makes you a promise, respond like Mary, not Zechariah. And what do I mean? Well, let me unpack it, and this is, I will finish with this. You see, it's possible to demand too much evidence before you believe God's promises. And that's what Zechariah is doing. He's, he's demanding more evidence. He's saying, oh, I'm not going to believe that unless I can have more evidence. The evidence, that you, the, your word that you've spoken and what you've given, it's not really enough. I need more to believe you, God. That's what he's saying. And we saw in the introduction, I said to you that Luke is trying to make it quite clear that we don't just believe things without evidence. He's trying to make that quite clear, saying, no, I want to give you some good Evidence that you can believe what I'm writing is true. And it's interesting to me that there's something that God doesn't like when we go beyond what is a humble and open heart and what a humble and open heart would require, and we demand more of Him. He doesn't like that. Why do I say that? Because later in this gospel, in Luke's gospel, in chapter 11, Jesus speaks, and He says this, When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It always wants a sign. But no sign will be given them except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the men of Nineveh, so will the Son of God be to this generation. The Queen of the South will arise at the judgment um, of this generation and condemn them. For she came for the, from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will arise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What is Jesus saying? 
He's not saying, not belittling the, that they want evidence for their faith. He, he's exposing a hardness of their hearts that's unrepentant, and it's so hard that they can't even see the miracles that he's doing, and they say, we want more than the miracles. We want more than that. We want more, more explanation than that. We want more evidence than the miracles. And that's what he's saying. And so I want to say to you, in the same way, we can be like Zechariah. We can demand so much evidence before we believe any of God's promises. How many of us haven't found ourselves in a really dark time where we've got a word from God and God has spoken to us and we're facing some really challenging circumstances? We, we say in our hearts, we say, oh God, thank you for that word, but I, I can't really believe you. I, I need a little bit more evidence, just something else, God. And we use, we use words like, uh, we're going to lay down a fleece. Sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? We'll lay down a fleece. And if God does that for me, then I'll believe Him. And He's already spoken a word to us. Are you hearing what I'm saying? We demand more evidence, just like Zechariah. Oh, when you do more, Lord, I will believe you. Thank you for that word, but actually I need so much more than that. It's actually unbelief. It's not how Mary responded. And basically... Luke reminds us in verse 37, with God nothing is impossible. And it's clear from Luke's story that God loves to keep His Word where humans can see no possible way for Him to do it. I am an old man. My wife is barren and advanced in years. I can't believe it, says Zachariah. My encouragement to you, my encouragement to me this morning is not let us not be like Zachariah. Yeah? What does God want to teach us? He simply wants to teach us, you can trust me. You can trust me. I love you. I can do all that you want. Uh, you can think it's humanly impossible, but you can trust me. And you can hear that heart going from Luke's pen to Theophilus. Trust God. Trust him, Theophilus. He's good to you. He's a good father. He can do this for you. Won't you just trust him? Take him at his word. Take him at his promise. Put your whole trust in Him. Don't try and work it all out. You don't need more evidence. He's already given the, the evidence that you need. You can trust Him with all of your heart. That's the basic encouragement. And that's the first thing that Luke wants us to see. It's possible and it's dangerous to insist on too much evidence before you believe. But secondly, the thing we learned from Mary is that it's okay and it's good that we ask humbly for an explanation with a soft heart when we are confused. Yeah, you hear what I'm saying? That's what Mary does. She comes with a soft heart. She comes with humility. And she just asks God, just help me understand. That's so different to unbelief. That's so different to saying, oh, give me so much more evidence, Lord, before I believe. Now she's just saying, oh, God, help me. I, I can see what you're saying. But how's, just help me understand. How's it going to work? How's this thing going to come together? Vast, vast difference. And that's what she says to the angel. You see, Mary sees the impossibility, humanly speaking, as clearly as Zachariah. But in her heart, she doesn't reject the possibility in unbelief. She responds humbly and just desires how God is going to make the impossible possible. <laughs> you know what I learned from that in my own life? is that when our heart is right, when your heart is right, when my heart is right, God is never opposed to our seeking to understand 
His ways in our lives and in history. He's never opposed to that. And we ask humbly with a soft heart, He will explain. He will reveal Himself. The difference is hard heart, unrepentant heart, demanding heart, or soft heart, repentant heart, saying, God, help me understand. That's the big difference. And you see, none of us are ever going to see everything clearly, are we, in this life? Certainly not. Why? Because Paul says in Corinthians that all of us, see through a glass darkly. It's like we, we, we kind of seeing something of what God has, but you never see it fully. You never see it clearly, clearly in 2020 vision. You get an idea of what God is doing. And Paul says it's always going to be like that until Jesus comes back. So get used to it. We're not going to see things perfectly. But what he also is saying is that we can understand about the ways of God on the basis of what he's revealed. And his word is more vast and deep than any of us here has imagined. And so... The only things we shouldn't seek to understand is if God says, well, you don't need to understand that. Yeah? But for everything else, we can seek, we can, uh, with open hearts, with humble hearts, ask questions, and God will reveal as we earnestly seek Him with all of our hearts. What He doesn't like is a spirit of, of just like curiosity or idle, unrepentant, arrogant skepticism that's always kind of saying, I need more, I need more, I need more, when He has already revealed so much. You see, Mary had that repentant, soft heart. Third thing that we can learn from this, and I'm closing with this. When we mess up, don't despair, repent, and move on. That's, for me, is the most wonderful thing about Zachariah's story. You see, he repented and moved on, and God still used him, you see? And in that sense, Zechariah is just like Peter. Peter messed up three times. He denied Jesus. But it was a temporary lapse in his life. This, this story of unbelief in Zechariah's life, it's temporary. It doesn't, it's not the way he ends. And all of us mess up. How many of you have not responded well when God has said something to you? Me, many times. I've often said, God, give me more evidence. Thank you for that word, but I want more evidence. Here's my fleece for you, Lord. When you do these three things, then I can know that you really have spoken. And when you have seen those three things, then I really will believe. I've done that many, many times. So I'm not pointing fingers at anyone. But Zechariah is such an encouragement. Why? Because he has this temporary lapse, and yet he still finishes well. Why do I say that? Because... In verse 6, it introduces Zechariah like this. He and Elizabeth were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, and were blameless. That's how we get introduced to Zechariah, a righteous man, a blameless man, who's following the way of the Lord, who's committing his life to him. So he's not an unbeliever. <laughs> and not only that, verse 13 says, God was answering Zechariah's prayer when he promised him a son. So he was a praying man. He was a righteous man. He was a praying man. He had a heart after God's kingdom. Even the best men, even the most godly men, fall into moments of unbelief. Even the best woman, the most godly woman in the world, fall into moments of unbelief. This is the great encouragement to me. None of us are perfect. None of us get it right all the time. Isn't that encouraging? Because how many of you have messed up? All of us have messed up. And yet we can finish well. Because Zechariah finishes well. Why do I say that? Because it says in verse 67, uh, it says, um, after all this stuff happens, Zechariah followed through obediently 
and named his child John. And in verse 64 it says, Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he spoke, Blessing God. And verse 67 says, And Zechariah, his father, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the name of the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited this and done this for all of his people. He finishes well. He messes up, but he finishes well. Come on now, doesn't that encourage you? We can finish well, even though we mess up, even though we don't believe God, and, his, and take him at his word. When we should, we can still finish well. Like Zechariah, he finishes well. And here he is. This is the last time we hear of him. And the last time we hear of him, he is prophesying. He's blessing God. He's saying, thank you for all that you've done to redeem your people. Thank you, Lord. Man, that's a cool story. So I want to encourage you. The lesson for all of us is when we mess up, don't despair. When we fall into unbelief, don't despair. Just repent. Accept God's forgiveness in Jesus and end up prophesying and blessing the Lord. Come on now, isn't that encouraging? There's grace and grace and grace and grace, even when we mess up. And uh, can I just say one more thing? Because I think it's important, and then we're going to go and pray for those who need prayer. Perhaps you're feeling this morning that you've messed up, that you haven't taken God at a word that He's spoken to you. Well, I want to pray for you. I want to pray that you'll finish like Zechariah. Yes? What does it mean to be blameless? Because I think that's a really interesting question because this is how Zechariah and Elizabeth are described. They were blameless. Have you ever thought what that means? I think it would be very strange if it meant that um, Luke meant that Zechariah was sinless. Sinless. Uh, and that the first time Gabriel approached him, then he sinned for the first time after that. I think, I think that would be strange. I don't think that's what he's saying. Um, to be righteous and blameless doesn't mean to be sinlessly perfect. I don't think it means that. Why do I say that? Well, throughout the Bible, and it's really important for us to see this, in Psalm 42, uh, uh, 32, it says that the righteous were without sin. There were those that didn't rest in their sin, but they repented and trusted God, and uh, they made His commandments the kind of tone of their lives, the, the way that the thing that they were always aiming at were the God's commands and, and pleasing Him. And that's why they were considered blameless, not because they were sinless. Do you see the difference? It doesn't mean that they, you know, uh, Paul says, I've, I've, um, I've not fulfilled the law because I've coveted. And how many of us, he says, that's the key thing that you can measure, that you can never measure up to the law because all of us covet, all of us long for things that we, other people have. And he says, that's the giveaway. You can keep all the other rules, but everyone covets. And that's the giveaway. We're all guilty under the law. So it doesn't mean that they never coveted. It means that in the tone of their lives, what they were aiming at, they were aiming at righteousness all the time. They were aiming at God's way all the time. And sure, they messed up. That's the story of Abraham. Sure, he messed up. But at the end, he pleased God and was blameless because his heart had always been, to, been towards him. Are you with me? And so Paul uses that word of himself. And Paul uses that word of Christians who believe in Jesus. He says, we are blameless. In Philippians 2.41, do all things without grumbling and questioning that you might be blameless in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation amongst whom you shine as lights in a dark world. 
1 Thessalonians 2. You are witnesses how God also is holy and righteous and blameless as was our Savior and was your behavior to you as believers. And then he denies at the same time. He, he denies sinless perfection. He says in Philippians 3, Not have I already obtained all of this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Do you get it? This is what I think it means to be blameless. It doesn't mean that you're trying to be sinlessly perfect. It means that over the course of your life, no one can accuse you or hold anything against you, including God. That's what I think it means to be blameless. You've done the best that you can to be righteous in your life. You've done the best that you can to reconcile relationships that need to be reconciled. You've done the best you can, and you're trusting God. And that's, that's walking blameless. Yeah? Isn't that free? You don't have to be sinlessly perfect. We aim at sinless perfection. Yeah, we don't want to carry on sinning. But we can be blameless in the sight of God and in others, when we try over the course of our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit, the tone of our lives is God's commands. The tone of our lives is His righteousness. Our, our, our mark, what we are aiming at, is that thing that God has promised us through Jesus, and He works out the details as we go forward. I find that incredibly encouraging. That's how Elizabeth and Zechariah are described at the beginning and at the end. Certainly, they, uh, Zechariah messes up. It doesn't matter because he ends up prophesying and blessing God for his goodness in his life. I trust that as you reflect on these things um, of Advent time now, that God would speak to you, that the rhythms of God's grace would become more apparent in your own life, that you will aim at him, that you'll forgive yourself when you don't always hit the mark. Yeah? You won't beat yourself up. No, I missed the mark. Lord, help me to repent. I'm sorry. And I move on. Just like Zachariah did. Was there discipline for him in the moment? Yes, there was discipline in the moment for him. He couldn't speak for a while. But then his mouth was opened again and he could pro prophesy and worship. So there might be momentary discipline when we, we miss God for something. But there's always redemption. There's always God's blessing. There's always the next thing he has for us. Amen.